0: at the majesty of God. But while they were all marveling at everything he was doing, Jesus said to his disciples, let these words sink into your ears. The Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men. But they did not understand this saying, and it was concealed from them so that they might not perceive it, and they were afraid to ask him about this saying. This is God's holy and inerrant and inspired word. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our Lord endures forever. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this time that you've given us, and we pray, Lord, now that you would be pleased by your Holy Spirit to take your holy word and apply it to us, your holy people, so that we might give you holy praise and worship. Lord, we are needy for the life-sustaining power of your word. We are hungry for its nourishment. And Lord, we pray that as you apply it to us, you would not only lead us to repentance, but build us up in faithfulness so as to glorify you in all that we do. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Well, we've just left the heights of the mountaintop experience where Jesus has revealed to Peter, James, and John a glimpse of his divine glory. A literal moment of heaven on earth. And now, as we descend down the mountain, we descend with Jesus back down into the turmoil and drudgery of the fallen world below. The juxtaposition of these two sections, these two passages, the one we looked at last week and what we've just read this morning, the juxtaposition is so stark with so much contrast that I think it's worth noting here at the very beginning. In all three Gospels, uh, uh, excluding John, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, uh, we see this account given, and it's given back to back with the transfiguration and then descending down the mountain to this healing of the Uh, uh, demon possessed boy and they don't adjust it they don't move it around because I think they all see the stark comparison and contrast to the glory of the mountain down to this demonic demonstration in the valley John MacArthur puts it this way one happened on a mountain the other in the valley sort of emblematic of being in the high place and then in the low place in the mountain there was glory in the valley there's tragedy On the mountain, Jesus Christ dominates in his bright, shining majesty. In the valley, Satan dominates in his ugly, cruel violence. Two sons appear in this text. One is God-possessed, the other is demon-possessed. Two sons, one in whom his father is well-pleased, the other in whom his father is tortured with displeasure. Two sons appear, one son fulfilling a glorious plan from ages past affirmed by Old Testament and New Testament saints, The other son disassociated, disconnected, demented, and chaotic without purpose or value to anyone. Two sons, one destroyed by demons. The other, the destroyer of demons. Two sons, both given back to their father. The demon-possessed son delivered and given back to his father. The son of God killed and raised and descended back to his father. It's a striking picture. You can understand perhaps a little bit of why Peter's claim last week to make booths for Jesus, Moses, and Elijah and stay longer on the mountain. If that's glory on earth, who wants the demon-filled destruction of the valley below? But alas, Jesus doesn't let them, and he oftentimes does not let us stay on the mountaintop, does he? So there's contrast, there's juxtaposition, and it's good to see, for nothing else, to have the reminder that our mountaintop experiences are just that, brief moments of respite and heavenly joy that God has allowed us to have, but oftentimes does not allow to last long because, let's be honest... And let's be clear, this side of heaven, on this side of glory, we still have a mission and a ministry to interact with and serve the world and point them to Christ. And it's hard, and there's drudgery in it. But even though there is a juxtaposition between these two two scenes, I think we still want to say that Jesus shows his glory in both cases. On the mountain, he shows his glory in unveiling his divine presence. But now in this text, here in the valley, he still shows his glory but in a different way, through his divine power in delivering this young boy. It's significant that Peter, when later in life he recounts his mountaintop experience, and we read that passage last week in 2 Peter, Peter, he says that he was an eyewitness to Jesus' divine majesty. He uses the word majesty. And here, after Jesus delivers and heals this young boy, how does Luke record the crowd's response? Look at verse 43. And all were astonished at the majesty of God. In other words, Luke wants us to consider here that what Peter saw in majestic glory above is no different from the work he does here in the valley. It's the same Jesus, the same majesty. We might not get the fireworks, But when the ministry is happening, it's the same glory. Well, we begin with what was truly a sad and terrible situation, a desperate dilemma, a desperate dilemma. And we hear the desperation, don't we, in verses 38, 39 and 40. A man from the crowd cried out, teacher, I beg you to look at my son for he is my only child. And behold, a spirit seizes him, and he suddenly cries out. It it convulses him so that he foams at the mouth, and, and it shatters him and will hardly leave him. I begged your disciples to cast it out, but they couldn't. Piecing together what we read here with what Matthew and Mark say about the incident, we get this very dark picture. When the demon seizes the boy, the child screams, the spirit throws him to the ground in convulsions so that he's foaming like a rabid animal out of the mouth he grinds his teeth and becomes stiff as a board according to mark 9:18 countless times he was thrown by the demon into fire or water to be either incinerated or drowned and ultimately destroyed he's covered with scars no doubt even worse the spirit as mark puts it in mark 9:25 has made him deaf and dumb The poor boy lives, as one commentator put it, in aquarium-like existence. He can see what's going on around his pathetic body, but he cannot hear or speak. His father concludes here in Luke, it shatters him and will hardly leave him, verse 39. Literally, it is crushing my little boy altogether. How utterly awful. And just to be clear, Luke in the ancient world did not think that all epilepsy was demonic. Luke was a physician, if we remember, and throughout this gospel, he's been able to make the distinction between mere physical ailment, no matter how bad or severe it is, and then that of demonic possession. We ought not to judge the past as entirely ignorant and unscientific. If anything, we're the more ignorant in that most today would deny the existence of demons and spiritual realities. Our unbelief. In spiritual realities, a sad consequence, I would say, of living in a post-enlightenment world has rendered us far more ignorant than our pre-enlightenment forefathers and foremothers. Speaking of unbelief, we see the disciples utterly powerless to do anything about this demon, despite the poor father's pathetic begging. But but Why? That, that question really ought to lodge itself in our minds, uh, especially if we remember the beginning of chapter 9. We've been in chapter 9 for about a month now. Do you, do you remember how it started, chapter 9, verse 1? Look back there at verse 1. And he called the twelve together and gave them power and authority over all demons and to cure diseases. All demons. And yet here... Here's a demon that all the disciples couldn't get rid of. You could almost imagine each disciple one by one trying his best to exercise authority over the demon and one by one trying to cast it out. I, 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 I think of that, uh, that scene in um, uh, the, the Sword and the Stone. Remember King Arthur, the old cartoon? And each man tried to get the, sto- uh, the sword out of the stone. They couldn't do it. One by one. Rebuked and failing by this demonic power. So again, we have to ask, why? Didn't Jesus give them all authority? In the Gospel of Matthew, we get the answer. Matthew tells us that the disciples came to Jesus privately afterward and, and asked him, why could we not cast it out? Jesus said to them, because of your little faith. Here in Luke, I think we get the same thing in verse 41 where Jesus is ironically more upset with the disciples and the crowds than he is with the demon. He says, doesn't he, oh faithless and twisted generation, how long am I to be with you and bear with you? Bring your son here. Frederick Godet. French commentator has suggested that Jesus' exasperated response may have been partially due to his wonderful night of prayer and communion up on the mount in transfiguration. Quote, Jesus feels himself a stranger in the midst of unbelief. The holy enjoyment that he enjoyed of the night before, as it were, now makes him homesick. If only you believed. If only you truly knew my father as I know my father and in faith asked him to do what only he can do. If you really knew him, you wouldn't waver in your prayers. You wouldn't waver in your faith and you could have exercised this demon. As Jesus puts it in Matthew 17, if you had even a mustard seed sized faith, you could say to this mountain, move from here to there and it will move and nothing will be impossible for you. But as it stands, this feat is now impossible for the disciples. Their unbelief has rendered them spiritually impotent. And because of this, Jesus rebukes them and includes them in the wider generation, this this wider culture of unbelief, twisted unbelief around them. Note Jesus' words, O faithless and twisted generation. Their faithlessness was expressed in twistedness. Some translations have it as perverseness. Not just a moral perverseness, though it included that, but a a perverting of all reality. When Jesus calls them a faithless and twisted generation, he's quoting what Mazdak read for us earlier out of Deuteronomy 32, a famous passage every synagogue-attending Jew would have known. He's saying that there was a perverseness, there was a twisting of what was right and virtuous and noble, into something wrong, sinful, and deformed, and it's just the air the culture breathes. They don't even know it. What that generation believed in, God hated. And what God upheld as good, they twisted. And all of this stemmed from unbelief. When human beings fail to believe in and trust God, they twist their lives into all kinds of crazy shapes, trying as if it were possible to twist ourselves out of the image of God. Again, don't miss where Jesus' annoyance is directed here. It's not at the demon. He's not annoyed or upset at the demon, but at the unbelief of God's people, including his own disciples in this moment. And listen. Listen. It's not as if the disciples didn't try to heal the young boy. They did. They probably tried their hardest. They probably tried all day and all night doing everything they could, which should be a reminder to us that effort and unbelief can coexist. You can be spinning your wheels and doing all kinds of things for the kingdom of God and and for Jesus, but all of it for nothing because it's done out of self-deluded unbelief. Listen, churches make this kind of shift constantly, subtly moving from trust in God and what he can do to now, how does the saying go? Trusting the process, putting more faith in the formula. Unbelief tricks you into thinking that the power is in the process rather than in the person of the Son of God. They'd cast out demons before. They knew the process by now, but they had taken their hearts off of Jesus. They'd taken their minds and their faith off of God. It's interesting. Listen to this. It's interesting that in Mark's account of this episode, when the disciples asked Jesus why they couldn't exercise authority over the demon, his answer is that this kind of demon cannot be driven out by anything but prayer. In other words, their unbelief was evidenced in their lack of prayer. The process trumped their prayer life. The process and performance took main stage while prayer receded into the background. I'm preaching to myself here, but you can do ministry in grand performance style, and everybody think, wow, you're doing a great job, pastor. And yet, there's a desert of prayerlessness behind. You want to see a man who truly believes, who really has faith, Look for a man who prays. Do you want to see a church truly operating out of faith? Look for a church that doesn't emphasize the performance or the process and formula, but a church that emphasizes prayer. I'll see you guys next Sunday at our evening service when we commit ourselves to prayer. 6 to 7.15. Well, the verses 37 through 41 show us the desperate dilemma And then verses 41 through 43 show us the divine deliverance. The divine deliverance. After Jesus' rebuke, he calls for the boy to be brought before him. And as he was brought before Jesus, the boy succumbed to another invasion from hell, taking over his entire body, convulsing on the floor. Verse 42. While he was coming, the demon threw him to the ground and convulsed him. But Jesus rebuked the unclean spirit and healed the boy and gave him back to his father. From Jesus' omniscient perspective, he knows, he, he agrees with the father that the boy's problem is more than just physical. His physical ailments, which are severe, stem from a deeper spiritual problem. Let's not pass over too quickly here the significance of God's only begotten Son taking compassion on this only begotten Son. Here's a father in utter despair over his only Son who's now under the control of a devastating demon and in the providence of God, he's brought to the Son whose death upon the cross will utterly break the strongholds and power of all demons everywhere. Here in this... this ultimate exercise of authority. Jesus will foreshadow his ultimate authority established in his death, wherein he descends into Hades and sets the captives free. Think about the situation. This will be the boy's last convulsion. This was the demon's last victory over this child. As Luke puts it, Jesus rebuked the unclean spirit and healed the boy and gave him back to his father. Sure, the the demonic spirit had snatched the boy from his father, but once Jesus healed him, Jesus ultimately restores what God had originally intended in a boy being given back into the loving hands of his daddy. He gave him his boy back, fully restored, fully freed from the devilish control of dark spiritual forces, a boy fully revived who perhaps for the first time in years was able to say, Daddy, and, and hug him. And smile and, and, and laugh and play. What was that night like when his dad put his boy to bed? Did they both pray and thank God for Jesus Christ? I have a hunch that they did. What's Luke's commentary on this whole scene? Verse 43. And all were astonished at the majesty of God. What was only seen from a distance the day before as the crowd looked up the mountain and saw a majestic glow of glory coming from the cloud-covered mountaintop was now seen in their immediate presence in the actions of a healing Messiah. But their astonishment did not translate into faith and belief. Their astonishment did not translate into faith and belief. We've seen the desperate dilemma, and in verses 41 through 43, we we saw the divine deliverance, but now in verses 43 and 45, we see a dulled understanding, a dulled understanding. These next few verses are incredibly interesting, and, and they really shape everything that we've just seen going before it. Everyone, including the disciples, are in complete awe at what Jesus has done, and rightly so. But Jesus does not want his disciples to come to the wrong conclusion, an unbelieving conclusion. He prefaces what he's about to say with a very strong plea to listen and to listen carefully. Verse 44, let these words sink into your ears. It's one of the strongest ways he could get them to to zero in and focus. Everything you just witnessed only makes sense if you get this, if you understand what I'm going to say next. And what does he say? The Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men. Did he point at the marveling crowds when he said that? The glory and the majesty that everyone is marveling at right now everyone is praising and exalting me over only comes ultimately when you see my glory on the cross and I will be delivered to the cross. And therein, as I hang upon that cross, you will see the most majestic and glorious event in all human history, ironically, the darkest event in all history, Human history, the sun blacked out as God the Father pours out his wrath upon God the Son, so that all these men who are unbelievingly praising Jesus right now for what he can do for them dies for their sins. Jesus wants to remind them that all of this ministry, all of this healing, all of this authority and exercise over the demonic. Means nothing lest I go to the cross. For Jesus Christ, the the central component to glory, and I might argue that if we could sum up the Bible, the whole point of Christianity in one word, it would be glory. What is the chief end of man but to glorify God and enjoy Him forever? At the heart of glory, is the substitutionary penal death of Jesus Christ upon the cross for his people. Now here's what's so ironic and interesting about this passage, because he's he's giving truth, he's dropping gems of absolute nuggets of gold that we cherish and we sing about and we will sing about here in a moment. And yet at this time and in this moment, what does Luke tell us? They did not understand this saying. One, they have a dulled understanding. They're caught up in the unbelieving undulance of the crowds around them, thinking that the Messiah is one who's going to come in on a horse with a sword and fix everything through his powerful miracles, and they don't have the foresight, the believing foresight, to see that it only comes through the cross. Their understanding is dulled. But isn't it interesting that Luke says... And it was concealed from them, so that they might not perceive it. I think there's something of a double-edged sword here. What we get is language that is a clear defense and understanding of the sovereignty of God over every human heart and every mind. Uh, Proverbs tells us that God holds the understanding of every human heart in his hands and molds it as he wishes. And he's doing so here. And I think the double-edged sword is this. As he looks at the disciples and he looks at the crowds and he sees this unbelieving undulance and he's just given the message of what he must do on the cross being given over to men and they don't get it. Jesus is saying at once and the same time to the disciples, you don't yet get it, but when you see me on the cross, and then days later at Pentecost, you're filled with the Holy Spirit, then and then only will it all click and you will understand exactly what I told you and get ready because then your ministry is really going to begin. You will preach the cross and the cross only. Right now, it's not time yet. Right now, you need more growing. Right now, I am only keeping you in kindergarten because you're not ready to graduate 12th grade. Let's just go through this process slowly. But the other edge of the sword is he's looking at the crowds behind him. And I think he's saying somewhat similar to what God says to Isaiah in Isaiah 6. You will keep preaching and you will do amazing things and indeed you will hang in your glorious moment upon the cross and still the crowds will not get it. And in judgment against them, I will keep them from getting it. Here is a double-edged sword of the gospel, doing what only the gospel can do, by the Spirit bringing people to understand as the Lord wills it, but also at the same time hardening hearts as the Lord wills it. It's not for nothing that later... Paul will say in 2 Corinthians that preaching the gospel is the hardest thing Jesus has ever called any man to do. Because when you preach the gospel, that sword of the gospel will do two things and always two things. It will either humble hearts and bring people to a saving understanding of what the cross says, or it will harden hearts and push people away from a saving understanding of what the cross is. And Jesus is testifying here that every response to him, every response to what he will do upon the cross and then three days later in his resurrection, every response is not up to the women will of men and women around him, but still to the sovereign, sovereign control of a good, good God. This is a fascinating statement. And let me encourage us, as those who now on this side of the cross know exactly what Jesus was talking about, We could come away from the statement and say, well, what's the point? If it's up to God, what are we doing? Let's just stay in our holy huddles, worship God, and thank him for allowing us to, as Phil prayed earlier, know him and repent and believe. But, you know, everyone else, they're lost, and only God can save them. No, 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 dear friends. Remember chapter 9 is Jesus training his disciples to be apostles, to be messengers. And this truth that God can allow people to understand the gospel by his sovereign illuminating grace, that truth will motivate the apostles to go to the ends of the earth and preach boldly and brilliantly, understanding that what they're doing is silly. They're speaking words that don't make sense but they've got the God of sovereign control behind them, and he can use that word to open up and break apart hearts and cause men and women to say, yes, I believe. We ought not be scared by the sovereignty of God in this text. We ought to be motivated to go out and say, repent and believe in Jesus. Yeah, no, seriously, I mean that. I get it, you don't understand know, I didn't understand it either, but I'm praying for you, and I mean it. Because I know that God can bring you to understand and to believe. So I'm going to keep telling you, and I'm going to keep praying for you. And let's see if people don't come knocking on our doors and saying, you know what? Thanks for praying for me and telling me about Jesus. At first, I didn't get it, it was nonsense. But God did something in my heart, and He's brought me to believe. Let's pray.